All right, Alexander. All right, Patrick. Let's uh, let's talk about what's going on in uh, in Ukraine, in uh, in the conflict zone. Patrick Lancaster. I don't think he needs any introduction. Alexander, everyone knows of Patrick's uh, amazing work. And I will have all of Patrick's links in the description box down below, as well as as a pinned comment. So definitely search out Patrick and uh, and all of his incredible videos. Alexander, we have Patrick with us. Patrick is is our eyes, our ears as to what is happening in uh, in Ukraine and in Donbass. So uh, let's let's get this video started, Alexander. Absolutely. And can I just say, I will give a very brief introduction. Patrick, for me, is the outstanding English language war reporter in this war in Ukraine. If I really want to know what's going on on the front lines, his videos are essential. Um, we do commentary on the Duran. We have to work out who we can rely upon, who's giving the accurate and reliable information Patrick always does. And if you want to follow what's actually going on on the front lines, get a real feel of the battle, go and follow Patrick, see what he says, see where he goes, see the astonishing places he goes to and the commentary that he gives. So, Patrick, last time we spoke, Ukraine was on the offensive. They were battling in all kinds of places. There was going to be the great offensive, the counteroffensive we were hearing so much about. It looks like things have completely changed. It seems that Ukraine is now on the back foot. It looks like the Russians are advancing. Now, I say that if you go to the Russian Ministry of Defense, if you go to President Putin, they're not talking about that very much. But I presume that, you know, all this that we're hearing about Avdevka, where you have been, about Marinka, where you have also been, about the Russian advances there. I, I presume that this is indeed happening in the way that we see. So perhaps you could tell us a bit. Tell us, first of all, about, you know, what you know about these two places, Mad um, Avdevka and Marinka, and what your understanding is of the situation there now. Alrighty. Uh, just first of all, I want to say thanks for having me. As always, it's always uh, great to be on. Uh, I appreciate you helping me, you know, spread the word of what you know I see and what I uh, feel needs to be shown uh, to the world, like you guys do. Um, uh, you know, just to give you know a little more insight to the viewers, just in case there's some new ones that don't really know too much about where I am actually. You know, most of my reports uh, come out from. Uh, the front line, as you said, on the Russian-controlled uh, side of the front line in the territory that in 2014 had a referendum. Uh, the locals voted to break away from Ukraine, and that's what preceded this nine-year war, not a two-year, a year-and-a-half war like the West would like uh, people to think. Um, but And this is also, they had a referendum in September of last year to actually join Russia. Um, so, you know, the local population considered the, these uh, areas as uh, part of Russia, um, and the West considers them uh, part of Ukraine. Of course, Ukraine uh, does. Um, but you know, the right of self-determination is something that should be considered, uh, and the, the local population wants their territory to be part of Russia. And by Russia.
concussion law. Now it is. So as far as the going back and forth, uh, who's taking what? Yeah, as you said, the uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive did not turn out the way they seemed. I mean, first they were blaming the delays on uh, the weather with overgrown bushes and things, and now the winter and you know and all this. Just more and more excuses uh, by the Ukrainian authorities. Um, but the fact is, they didn't take any uh, real territory, uh, significant territory during their counteroffensive. And now, as you mentioned, Russia is taking territory. Um, in Donetsk, where I'm mainly based, in the northern west, you've got Evdivka. As you mentioned, southern west, you've got Merinka. Now, in Evdivka, there are steady gains, and it's slowly, the city has slowly been uh, starting to be encircled. It's been a very slow process, but a constant process of Russia taking more gains to encircle. It's a strategic uh, a part of Russia's uh, war fighting, is um, making a cauldron as they call uh, call it, and just squeezing the enemy forces uh, out of this uh, cauldron and taking uh, the territory. Did the same thing back in Debaltseva in 2015 and many other uh, areas. Uh, so it's definitely gains being taken by Russia and Evdivka. And down to the south, Marienka, they have claimed total control of the city and some of the outlying areas. Now this is a, a suburb of Donetsk, which they've, as well as uh, Evdivka, been shelling um, the city of Donetsk from for years now, nine years, and now Russia has claimed control of Medeinka, um, which before the war had over 10,000 population. Unfortunately, now there's basically no population except for um, military forces because through the fighting, the city has just been completely destroyed. It's there's virtually nothing left uh, besides ruins uh, and trenches, um, but. Taking these areas, Russia taking Marienka and taking Abdevka uh, protects uh, or further protects the uh, city of Donetsk because in the last um, you know years, but it specifically um, every couple of months, there's an uptake by Ukrainian forces attacking on the center of the city and other and many civilian areas of Donetsk. And in this last uh, couple of months, and particularly the last weeks, they have been on another increase of the shelling of the city and the, the center. And unfortunately, this time, they're it seems the Ukrainian forces are changing their tactics a bit by uh, doing double taps or basically um, firing once, waiting a little bit of time, and then uh, giving the first responders, uh, firefighters, ambulances, police, uh, journalists, time to arrive on scene, and then firing again uh, once or se uh, several times. And in the last month, there was three journalists injured because of these double taps, as they call which, I mean, there's no question targeting first responders is a war crime uh, condemned by the, against the Geneva, Geneva Convention. And three journalists were killed, one, se or excuse me, not killed, uh, injured, one seriously injured. He had a piece of uh, shrapnel from a, a cluster bomb that came from a United States HIMARS uh, stuck in his liver and had to have it surgically removed. He was actually a, a, a friend of mine, one of my old uh, cameramen that used to help me film. Uh, but luckily he made it out alive and the other two uh, journalists that were injured at the same explosion also lived, thank goodness. Now, unfortunately, 
In the last several months, there has been uh, two journalists uh, killed um, near Zaporozhia, out of Donetsk, but it's still the same. They need to be mentioned because they were killed by uh, reportedly Western-supplied weapons as well. Um, now, uh, these double taps, as they uh, call it, continue to happen just across. It's not like a one-off or a two-off or, a, you know, a 50-off. This is something that happens, if not every day, every couple of days. Just um, the other day, I was at a um, location where... It, it was in the center of a residential area, and it was actually just the um, management or control center for the uh, city uh, stoplights, and that was hit directly by a United States HIMARS. Now, luckily, on that uh, point, there was not a double tap. It was a little bit uh, nerve-wracking being there because I'd actually been out of the front for uh, a while with my family, um, but you know now I'm back and trying to show what I can. But in that attack, unfortunately, there was two people, two civilians killed, and th at least three injured. And just the day before that, there was a um, mechanics uh, shop uh, that where they work on the city buses, and a direct hit to some sort of artillery or mortar. It wasn't exactly clear at the time which one it was. It wasn't a high Mars that time, but it was suspected to be a 155 millimeter Western supplied weapon that hit just outside this mechanic shop. And unfortunately, uh, some of the shrapnel flew about 15 meters and uh, it killed the worker uh, there who was just trying to work or do his job as a mechanic. Um, now, if we go past the uh, exact area around uh, Donetsk, where they're taking the territory of Marienko and Evdivka, as we said. We go more north to the area which used to be a, a lot more in the news, but Bakhmut or Artyomsk. And now Russia has claimed a control of a large swath of territory uh, just south and pushing out from uh, Bakhmut. And I actually just came back from the front line in that direction where I was uh, embedded with the uh, Russian forces, particularly a, a um, volunteer battalion called uh, the Wolves. And they were uh, firing artillery on Ukrainian positions in support of the advancement of Russian forces. So they've got that report coming uh, pretty soon. Um, but those are the three areas that I have the most uh, knowledge on as far as the, the for sure advancements of Russian forces. Um, so uh, if there's any other... Well, there's a lot to discuss like here. Uh, a lot to discuss here, Patrick. Let me just uh, reiterate the point you made. These double taps are intended to kill relief workers who in Donetsk yeah, yeah, no, no, no are question. overwhelmingly There were several civilians. firefighters and police yeah. killed as well. Exactly, exactly. So the, this is deliberately targeting relief workers and civilians. That's the first... I mean, I, I just want to make that absolutely clear so that there's no ambiguity about this. And as you correctly say, that is a war crime. Now, the second thing I wanted to ask is um, about these uh, attacks on Donetsk, it's not a question, it's a rhetorical question in a way. In the media in the West, we're reading all the time about the fact that Ukraine is suffering a shell shortage, that they're short of ammunition. But it seems that despite the fact that they are supposed to be short of ammunition, they still want to continue to target Donetsk city and to engage in double taps, which 
are killing civilians and which are intended to kill civilians. Now, that is a pretty astonishing thing when you think about it. It suggests a kind of visceral anger against the people of Donetsk. I'm using my words carefully now, which um, is most shocking and incomprehensible to me. It, it shows a sense of priorities which I find incredible. Is there anything you want to say in response to that, Patrick, before we proceed? Well, you know, I think you've got it right on. I mean, there's no question the just the deliberate targeting of civilians in these double deaths. And this goes on top of the just the normal targeting of civilian areas. Now, and all these people that have died in, in these attacks deserve their stories to be told. I mean, I would... Like I said, I've been away from Donbass for a little while with my family, but there was another uh, really good journalist, Johnny uh, from uh, Cafe Revolution, who's been on the uh, scene being, the, while I'm gone, the only um, English reports coming out of Donetsk. And unfortunately, he was on the scene just over a month ago where a high mars uh, hit a... Um, uh, a, 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 a Social Welfare uh, Administration building uh, and the surrounding areas in the center. And he raced to the scene, as he always does while I've been gone, doing a great job showing these reports. And he interviewed a young man, 19 years old, who was there just volunteering to help dig people out of the gravel in the, in the, the, the rubble because there was people buried under the, the, uh, the building that exploded around them, this young man. And he interviewed him. And, of course, him as a journalist was worried about the, uh, the double tap and did his, the best work he could and then left. And not two minutes later, another HIMARS uh, came, hit the same area, and killed that young man. And, uh, actually, the young man purportedly jumped on his girlfriend to try to hide her from the uh, explosion. And they were riddled with uh, shrapnel. And he actually made it for another six days in, in intensive care and then was killed. Uh, and just a, one of many horrible situations. Can I just ask you, Patrick, if Avdevka is captured, I mean, Marinka, I understand, is largely is, is captured. If Avdevka is captured, will that bring the Ukrainian artillery finally out of range. I should tell you, and I, I, found, I found this an absolutely chilling thing, that the London Times, which certainly knows what is going on, actually talked about it. Actually, there was an article in which they said that Avdevka was a dagger pointing at Donetsk. And they said that with approval. But if Avdevka is finally captured, will that finally mean that the shelling ends? It will definitely decrease the ability of Ukraine to fire on the center of Donetsk and all of the regions of Donetsk. But unfortunately, I don't think it'll stop it. I think they're going to be pushing as hard as they can, as, as much as they can, because, yes, it, some of the shorter range, it will. But, you know, the longer range, like the, the HIMARS and other uh, uh, rockets like this, you know, it's going to be a while before Russia pushes that far out. Um, so, unfortunately, Donetsk is the tip of the spear. Devka's not. Donetsk is the tip of the spear going into uh, Ukraine. And it's the most populated area in the uh, the Donetsk region. It's the capital of uh, the region. So, you know, people are there trying to be the, their strongest and to get, get their 
self-determination heard and it's you know it's been almost 10 years now may 26th it'll be uh, 10 years since the war started in donetsk and uh, people don't realize that around the world and they should um but we pray for the population of uh donetsk and uh, i do everything i can to as you guys do to show the world what's really happening right now in previous programs that we've done with you you've described the situation in Avdevka as it then was you said that this is an incredibly heavily fortified complex area you talked about the fact that there were cctv cameras that there were pillboxes that there were minefields this is from what i can understand an extremely difficult place to capture um do you think i mean do you feel rather that as i do that it's actually going a bit faster than uh, some people expected i mean you're talking about this cauldron starting to develop and can you give us a sense of how difficult you think the fighting there is likely to be given as i said what an elaborate fortification system there is there well on one hand um I mean, as far as the last times, the last months, yeah, maybe it is starting to uh, move on pretty well and fast, uh, as people hoped. Um, but if we looked at the long run since uh, uh, the beginning of last year, you know, <laughs> many people thought things were going to go a lot faster. You know, even the U.S. general, three days, Russia will be in Kiev. Um, you know, so, I mean, even myself, in one of my early reports for when this whole thing started again, I... Uh, said, oh, today is going to be the last day uh, Donetsk is a uh, frontline city. And boy, was I wrong. Um, so as far as the fortifications, yeah. I mean, one thing we didn't uh, take into account at first, or me personally, um, that, yeah, Ukraine had eight years of war to fortify these areas, to get things ready. Just like in Mariupol, Azov had eight years to get Mariupol ready, to put all the supplies and ammunition down in the catacombs underneath the uh, Azov and Ilicha plants, just to, to get in because they, they, they knew they were going to uh, go the long haul. So, I mean, it's, it's uh, the, the, yeah, they're, they're very... Uh, built up and it's difficult for Russian forces, not as easy as they thought it was going to be. Um, so it is what it is. I, I've heard a story, I've heard reports, not stories, reports that most of the soldiers, Russian soldiers, who are fighting in Avdeevka are actually local people. They are people from Donbass and that they're local brigades and that this is you know, that they're particularly motivated because this is not just their territory, but it's, you know, Donetsk is their city. Uh, it, it, from your knowledge, is that true? Are they indeed the local people who are fighting to, you know, to take control of Avdeevka, to, you know, push the Ukrainians back from Donetsk? Um, yeah, definitely. There is a lot of uh, locals uh fighting just like they I mean they most of them have been fighting for the uh, last many years maybe not all the whole nine years but I mean for between 2014 and 2000 and uh, 22 you know 99 point something percent of the fighters in Donbass were locals uh, and now you can find many battalions uh, and groups that are mainly con uh, consisting of locals. I, I don't want to say exactly too many different names of no. the groups, uh, no. uh, just for, you know, 
I think we can understand. Um, Absolutely. But uh, there are many groups that are fully uh, locals, uh, many groups that are partially, and many that are uh, volunteers from different countries, uh, specifically um, uh, South Ossetia, Abkhazia, um, uh, met Armenians uh, fighting, um, many from South America, uh, France. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, there's a lot of locals. Uh, and a lot of uh, Russians and right. others as well. So. Right. Can, can I just ask now, because we've asked this before in previous programs, I mean, the Russians now have seen the offensive off, the Ukrainian offensive off. They're now pushing forward. You, you've been in the front lines recently. You were, you were with this group near Bakhmut. I mean, what is your sense of the morale of the soldiers at the moment? Is it high? Or um, is, is it getting higher? Is it getting stronger? Are they feeling more confident? I mean, from what I could understand from your previous programmes, it was always pretty firm. I mean, it, there was never any real sense of a wobble. But are they feeling more optimistic now? They are feeling like the the end of the war might be coming sooner than they thought it was going to be in the last times. Um, of course, the the uh, events with Israel and Palestine and the funds getting funneled to Israel are changing the situation. And even the small soldiers understand this, as well as the uh, the uh, top brass. Um, so, and with the advances, things seem to be looking up. Now, people aren't sure exactly what. The, the, the end is going to be, I mean, when I ask these soldiers, what's, what's going to ha be happening next? They say, well, our victory. And I say, well, okay, well, what is that victory? And uh, they, you know, the overlying thing is they say, well, they, you know, people are going to stop, uh, uh, stop uh, dying. That's, uh, and um, we're going to have peace. Uh, and, you know, they kind of stay away from where that line is going to be. Um, but as I say, you know, all the time, we know where the minimum line is. The minimum line of the next way possible for peace is for Russia to be in control of what is, by Russian law, legally considered Russia, and that's all of the what 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 was uh, what is considered by Ukraine in the West, Lugansk uh, uh, region, Donetsk region, Zaporozhye, and her son. All of those territories. That is the minimum that by Russian law, Russia can stop this war regardless of peace talks. There's no way Russia can give up what is legally part of Russia by Russian law. So that's the minimum it's going to go. Now, is it going to go all the way uh, to Transnistria? Uh, who knows? Or all the way to Kiev? You know, I think there's only a couple people in the world that might know that right now. Um, but we'll have to be spectators and see and report on where it ends up and where it stops. I don't know whether you do. saw it, but there was, a, uh, there was a joke that Putin made when he met with some Russian war reporters. He said, you know, will we go to Kiev? Well, I know, th I know the answer, but I'm not telling. <laughs> he, 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 he made a joke about it. But anyway. Something like uh, that, yeah, for sure. <laughs> but um, can, can we turn to Bakhmut? Because, you know, this has been, from what I can tell, I mean, it, in some ways, the, the, the toughest and bloodiest battle 
of the whole war up to now. I mean, I, I've been looking at what the Russian Ministry of Defence gives as casualty figures. Um, and, I mean, they've been absolutely horrific. I mean, of course, they're giving Ukrainian casualty figures. But even during the summer, when, you know, Ukraine was attacking Zaporozhye, according to the Russian Ministry of Defence, it was around Bakhmut that the Ukrainians were taking the biggest losses. There's been a lot of talk recently that the Russians are moving towards this town, Chasov Yar, which is to the west of Bakhmut. Whilst you were there, I mean, did you get any sense of that? Were people talking about this? Or is this just, again, still people pushing forward um, that there is this sense that, you know, that they're pushing people away from Bakhmut, but the men on the ground don't yet know what the ultimate objective of this battle is? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're taking one day at a time. Um, uh, they're trying to stay alive and, and trying to push forward and trying to follow their orders to the best of their abilities. Um, so, I mean, they're concentrating on just moving forward and uh, going, going from there. Is where they're going to end up, you know, they're it's not, not sure yet. Yeah, it's not their business. Um, there's also reports now that some ex-Wagner fighters are now back in Bakhmut, especially on the southwest. Did you hear anything about that or see anything about that? That, you know, not, not Wagner as such, but volunteer units based around Wagner fighters have returned. Was there any sign of that that you saw? Um, well, I could say I noticed uh, a few uh, Wagner patches. Um, now, that could, that could signify that they were former members of Wagner or they could, that could signify they're just fans of Wagner. I think yeah. we can make our own conclusions. Yes. Is, are, these the two, are, are these the two biggest areas of the fighting at the moment? Avdevka, Marinka, the area around Donetsk and Bakhmut. Is that where the toughest fighting is happening? Because certainly that's well, my think, impression. Um, yeah, I mean, they're definitely the, 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 uh, on the top. There's a few areas up north um, in the Lugansk and Kharkov uh, direction um, that are getting going. But again, uh, I haven't been up there myself yet. Uh, hopefully in the near future I'll be able to go up there and you know, get a little more good insight on the situation there. But for my knowledge, yeah, these are the three hot spots, Medyanka, Evdivka, uh, and Bakhmut. Can you tell us a bit about Marinka? Because I think you've been there as well, and you you basically know the layout a bit there. I mean, why did this place take such a long time to capture also? Because this battle has been underway for 20 months, as I understand it. I mean, what was it specific to Marinka that made it such a tough place to capture, tougher than Bakhmut or, or possibly Avdevka as well? Um, you know, yeah, I've been on the edge and I've had actually many, um, close people that I trust that uh, were fighting uh, there. Um, and they said that just, you know, the, the Ukrainians were fighting very hard and, you know, didn't want to give an inch, you know, for quite a while because I mean, it was, you know, an area that they were using as a strategic, uh, firing position, just like Abdevka. Um, and, 
you know, I'm not one of these that really jumps on the, the, the conspiracies and all these really far out there things, but I can tell you what I've been told by um, people that I trust that were fighting on the, uh, for control of uh, Maryanka, for the Russian forces. They told me that many instances they would have um, uh, Ukrainian soldiers just uh, running at them from the, the line, trying to take their positions, and uh, it appeared to them that they were uh, under the influence of some sort of mind-altering substance to kind of get them going a little bit more. Um, you know, I, I try to stay away from that type of thing. If I, if, you know, showing, you know, reporting that unless I know for sure. And, I, you know, and the only thing less than seeing it with my own eyes is having people I trust tell me they're sure that they saw Ukrainian soldiers that were using narcotics to advance their fighting abilities. Um, and they said they it was working in some cases, you know. <laughs> I, mean, but, I, 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 uh, I mean, obviously, it didn't, work long, it didn't work long enough. So yeah, I mean, I, I would just make an observation about that. I mean, I too don't know to what extent this is actually happening in this war, but it has happened in other wars. I mean, you've been in the Middle East, and you know that some of the organisations, ISIS, for example, apparently did do that there, and. I think it's well established that in the in the Second World War, if it's not well established, it is conclusively known that the Germans regularly gave amphetamines to their soldiers. That was in the Second World War. So you know, it's not as if this kind of thing would not be, you know, would be unprecedented or new. But let's move on from that because we don't have the facts. So. Um, why did the Ukrainians hold on to Marinka for so long? Is it again because it's so close to um, Donetsk? Were they shelling Donetsk from there? Or, and again, I understand that this is a, perhaps more a strategic thing, lots of stories that we're reading in all kinds of places that Marinka is the linchpin of some kind of fortification situation uh, and that if Marinka is finally captured, other uh, other areas will start to be cut off from each other, and it'll make the rush make it easier for the Russians to to capture them. I mean, did you hear anybody on the front lines discuss this at all? Why the Ukrainians made such a thing of trying to hold on to Marinka? Well, I mean, I think you know they when there's these you know. Um, key places are, you know, they're almost like trophies. I mean, it goes all the way back to the Donetsk airport. The Donetsk airport was this trophy that the two sides, one fighting from the old terminal, one fighting from the new terminal, uh, going against each other in 2014 and 15. Uh, and it was, you know, just this prize, a morale thing for the, for the people, for the locals of Donetsk. And when they, they finally got the airport, it was such a, a big boost to the, the morale of the people and the soldiers. Um, now, is that the... You know, we saw that again with um, uh, uh, with uh, Bakhmut, and you know when Russia uh, took that, it was a big thing. Now there's also stories. Oh, is it this strategic? How strategic is it? Is it the path to Kramatorsk? You know, uh, you know, I'm not a, a professional enough soldier. Uh, wasn't in the military long enough to understand the full uh, strategic advances of different things. But I can tell you, Marienka. You know, it's, as I said, used to attack the city. It's a key 
uh, fighting area to move on to Donetsk as Avdivka is. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, you know, to the best of my ability, uh, what I can say. Yeah, I understand. Can I just ask about the mood in Donetsk itself amongst the civilian people? Because, as you correctly said, they've been, un- they've been in a state of war now for nine years and pretty grim war as well. They've had the Ukrainians parked just close to their city. You know, the Times calling of Devka the dagger pointing at the heart of Donetsk. So um, what is the mood now? Because were they nervous during the summer when Ukraine was launching its offensive? Are they more optimistic now? Do they sense there that finally the war is moving towards a victorious conclusion? Is there an uplift in morale? What is happening? Well, well, what I can say, you know, just a little insight for the people that might not really have a good understanding of, like, the situation, because if, if there's people watching here that might be just be relying on the Western media, they might think, oh, you know, Ukraine is coming to save the people of Donetsk from the big bad Russians. But the fact is, the local population of uh, Donetsk hates the Ukrainian government and it because every local every civilian knows one of their family members or one of their close friends or uh, that has been either killed or seriously injured by Ukraine shelling civilian areas and te- uh, targeting the civilians in what the locals call terrorist attacks on the local population um so if anybody's watching this, don't get confused. The the local population is not waiting for Ukraine to come save them. They're waiting for Russia to save them from the daily attacks by Ukrainian forces. And that's what they've been doing for the last nine years. Now, right now, they, they're, they see a little bit coming, but they don't believe what's happening yet. I mean, of course, to, you know, at the beginning of 2022... There was a huge uplift in morale, thinking, oh, the war is going to stop, Russia's going to move in, you know, blaze through everything. And then morale came down a bit when it didn't go as fast as the, the, everyone uh, thought. So now people are being morally, morally cautious uh, and you know, just waiting for something really concrete. Is, are we moving on this? Uh, what's going to happen? But I can say the people and the soldiers, as I said, they, they have a feeling that the war is not going to last as long as they thought it was a few months ago. Yep. Uh, when that's going to end, they don't know. No, uh, Russia's going to have elections in a few months. I mean, uh, in March, there's presidential elections in Russia. And, of course, Donetsk is also now part of Russia, as far as Russian law and constitution and the feelings of its people are concerned. So they will be participating in those elections. Now, do people worry about that? Do they think that if, as the elections get underway, Ukraine is going to do everything it possibly can to disrupt them? I mean, will there be more shelling? Will there be more things of that kind? And... Are people nonetheless intending to vote in these elections? Because I presume that there will be a big effort made to try to organise elections in Donetsk. And of course, we've had other elections. We had that referendum last year, for example, in Donetsk. So we see that they can be 
organized even in type of war in times of war but i mean how do people feel about the elections do they look forward to them are they uh, nervous about them because of what the ukrainians might do is the general confidence and optimism what is your sense about the elections well um as far as the ability to have election, safe elections um i mean every day there's attacks uh, it's sometimes it's kind of hard to tell is Donetsk being targeted just because it's a, a Russian holiday like Easter? Because on Easter last year there was many killed. Um, you know, two days ago when uh, Putin had his worldwide uh, question, question and answer, um, there was, like I, I had mentioned, the street management streetlight center hit and two killed. There were many uh, drones flown from Ukrainian territory over the city, at dropping ammunition on uh, civilian areas. Uh, many people injured that day. And as well, in the evening, three long-range rockets launched on Mariupol for the first time in a while. So, uh, you know, with the Ukraine trying to make a point because of Russia, uh, Putin's little Q&A holiday, um, maybe, or maybe it's just because they just decided to, you know, open up that day. Um, will there be attacks on Election Day? 100% there will be, because there's attacks every day. Will it be a specific increase just because of the election? Unfortunately, probably. Um, uh, so, as far as the, the, what the people think about the elections, they're going to be overwhelmingly happy to uh, vote in the Russian elections again. Um, and... The safety of the elections is going to be helped because basically now that it's war, for the last few elections, they have a system where there's mobile election centers that go out to the different areas of the city and the suburbs and other you know villages uh, where they let people vote at the, uh, the mobile station. And then on the last day, the elections go for about five days and then there's one main day. Uh, and then on the last day, people can come who didn't have a chance to go to the mobile stations, uh, to the actual schools and gyms and whatnot to have the normal way you, you stand there with the boxes. But of course, course, I'll be covering that and uh, so will other channels like uh, Cafe Revolution and, and things. I definitely recommend people check out their uh, channel on uh, YouTube and uh, Telegram. So yep. they put out a good lot of work too. So, Patrick, am I right in thinking that this is the first time that uh, Donbass, Donetsk, is participating in Russian elections? since the end of the Soviet Union. I mean, they've had local elections, they've had uh, the referendum that happened last year, but this is the first time that they are participating in an actual Russian election, an election to elect the bodies of power in Moscow, in this case, the president himself. And how do people feel about this? I mean, that is this, that, you know, the, for the first time, they can vote for if I'm right about this, that they can vote for the president of Russia and he's in effect their president. They're voting for their own president. I mean, what is the sentiment about this in Donetsk? Do people think uh, about that? Yes, you're, uh, you're, uh, there's a little, uh, you're right, and there's a little things I can add to this. So yes, this is the first time they're going to be able to uh, uh, vote for their president, uh, the president of Russia, and they're going to be uh, very happy to do it. And uh, as far as a Russian election, the first 
technical Russian election was, as you said, the regional elections where they're able to uh, regionally vote. But yes, this is the first uh, time they're going to be able to vote for the power in uh, Moscow as running their part of Russia. And they're very happy to do it. <laughs> I can imagine. Um, <laughs> I suppose I should ask this question because if I don't, people will wonder why. I mean, whom are they going to vote for? Are they going to vote for Putin overwhelmingly? Or are they going to vote for someone else? Yeah, there's, uh, I mean, there's no question uh, that the overwhelming population of these areas are going to be voting for uh, Putin. I think uh, the last I heard, the independent third party um, uh, estimates were in, in polls uh, uh, were 80% for Putin overall Russia, but I would have to think uh, the Donbass uh, would probably be about over 95%, I would think. And just in my uh, uh, opinion of the people, the locals I see, the soldiers I see, and, you know, just talking to them about what they think. I would think, you know, well over 95%. 95 is a conservative estimate, I right. think. So one last, one last question for me, and I'm of the actual war. Now, lots of things now in the Western media about Ukraine being short of tanks, ammunition, drones, you name it, they're supposedly short of it. What about on the Russian side, the, the soldiers that you meet? I mean, obviously, they would obviously like more of everything. I mean, you know, that's what soldiers will always want. But do they, do they feel that they're getting basically what they need? I mean, you know, in terms of supplies, not just weapons, but, you know, medical supplies, food, uniforms, water, all the things that soldiers need. I mean, do, are, are, are they properly supplied in this war? The Russian soldiers? Um, well, I mean, as far as the weaponry, um, you know, I, I show up at a uh, artillery battery positions and go out with them and they've got enough to fire. I mean, beyond, you know, the, the logistical uh, setup, uh, I mean, I know the, the Russian military, they, I, I forget offhand what it's called, but their system of supplying is more like a, a take and deliver, take and deliver. You don't really, they didn't really have to request it so much. It's just, they've got, their system is, based on delivering instead of uh, waiting for the request. Um, you know, it, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, uh, the, the, I, I think the b biggest thing is, you know, there is movement on the front line, so they've got enough to, to make yeah. some sort of movement. Yeah. Well, Patrick, I, I, I found that most uh, uh, a fantastic program from my part. This is, I mean, I don't have anything specific more to ask, but um, is there anything you particularly want to say uh, uh, yourself? And then we'll hand over to Alex. No, is, is there anything you want to say, Patrick, before, yes. we, before yes. we end the video? Yes. Um, yeah. I, uh, well, I would think for people out there who aren't really that maybe this is something new that you're hearing, you know, do some research. Uh, don't just watch one source. Don't just watch one side. Watch uh, reports from both sides of the line. Don't just watch your Western media. Watch, uh, you know, bloggers from both sides, if you can find them. Um, watch me. Watch Duran. Watch uh, Redacted. Watch uh, uh, Cafe Revolution and Donetsk. Watch as many different... Um, uh, 
sources to get as much information as you can and educate yourself on what the real situation is because no, no, not one source is going to be able to tell you everything you know. You need to get as much information from as many different sources as possible to, uh, to even get a little bit of understanding of what's really happening. And don't fully believe anyone. Um, and as far as my work, you know, I'm pushing on back in Dunbas. I'm going to uh, keep, keep on. And as always, I'm totally independent and crowdfunded. Um, you know, I might do collaborations with other channels, but I make a point to only be uh, supported by my viewers. So if people would like, they can support me on uh, uh, the site Buy Me a Coffee. And I think we can put the link in the description, maybe. And of course, Follow me on uh, YouTube, Patrick Lancaster, Patrick Lancaster News uh, Today. Uh, same on uh, Twitter, Telegram, Rumble, of course, you know, just in case. <laughs> um, uh, so, yeah, that's about it. Thanks for having me, guys, and hope the viewers got something out of it. You are the certainly will, and so have we, by the way. Patrick Lancaster, thank you again. May I take this opportunity, by the way? Christmas, New Year, holidays are coming up. You won't be much on holiday, but can I, in any event, wish you season's greetings? And, of course, in the Russian world, they celebrate Christmas. I think it's on the 12th of January. But, anyway, um, happy Christmas to Seven. all. Sorry? Seventh, seventh. Thank January. you very seventh, much. January. <laughs> Whatever. You're quite right. It's 12. That's right. It's 12 days off. But anyway, happy Christmas to everybody also in Donbass. Yeah. Merry Christmas. Happy Stay New Year. Stay safe, Patrick. Stay, stay, yeah. stay safe. Absolutely.